Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Miami. Hey, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 12. If you do not have a Bible, I encourage you, you can raise your hands and one of the ushers will get a Bible to you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that one home, write your name in it, and just be sure to read it. A few announcements before we continue our journey through Matthew chapter 12. Tonight we have our prayer meeting at 6 p.m. If you've never made it out to a prayer meeting, I encourage you to come on out. It's always a very special and blessed time. And then tonight's prayer meeting is going to be extra special because after our time of worship and small group prayer, we'll be having a water baptism on the back concrete pad in the church here. So I encourage you, come on out. If you still want to get water baptized, you can register at calvarymiami.com slash events. And it's going to be a very special and sweet time. There's about 20-something people already signed up to be water baptized. And it's just a blessing in this season of so many people coming to the Lord, uh, even though their physical family perhaps is maybe ostracizing them or pushing them away because they've been raised in atheism or they've been raised in Catholicism or all these different religions. They're coming here and have worked there together with them During this time of baptism, it just encourages them of the family in Christ that they're being grafted into. So I encourage you to come on out tonight, 6 p.m., worship, prayer, and then baptism. On December 9th, that's this coming Saturday, we're going to be having a property cleanup day. So in order to get the church property looking as best as it can for our Christmas service, we invite you, if this is your home church, come on out Saturday morning at 8 a.m. We'll be doing some work throughout the property, some finishing touches on the playground. We just ask that you register at calvarymiami.com slash events to make sure that there's enough work for everybody and enough lunch for everybody as well. And then finally, on December 24th, we have our Christmas Miami service. I encourage you, grab some flyers on your way out at the information table and hand those out to friends, family. Invite people. Invite strangers. We're living in a day and age where people truly are hungry for the truth. People are hungry for love and people are hungry for just fellowship, to be able to gather in a building where there's no, no animosity, no bitterness, no tension, but to be able to just enter in a place where there's love and peace, the whole world is looking for that. But hey, we are here in Matthew chapter 12 this morning. Let's pray, and then we will dive in here. Uh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. Uh, Lord, you could have left us orphans, Lord. You could have left us dead in our sins, God, and yet how you sent your only Son to die for us, to be the the payment for our sins, Lord. Uh, We thank you just for the depths of your love, Lord. Thank you for initiating this relationship, God. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd fill us to a fresh and a new Lord, that we would be able to not only understand your word, but that we would apply it as we leave here this morning. And Lord, we pray for many in the church body, Lord, who are hurting, Lord, those who are hurting, those who have fallen, those who are broken, Lord. Continue to pray for Jake and Christy, Lord, for Roberto and Leonard. Pray for Raz and Isel, Lord, so many are hurting. And Lord, for anyone within the flock and the family during this holiday season, Lord, when the waves of depression or sadness come, Lord, may they reach out to you and may they reach out to family members, friends, and the body of Christ. Uh, So Lord, we just love you. 
pray that you'd speak to us here this morning. We love you and we thank you, Jesus. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 12. We mentioned last week how in this chapter we're going to see the animosity and the friction between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's going to continue to grow and grow to the point where it pours over. They get Judas in. Judas shows them who Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane. But here in chapter 12 we're going to see it really continue to grow and boil up. We're also going to see the heart of Jesus for the lost and unbelievers, and then also the heart of Jesus for those who are just unwilling to humble themselves at the sight of him, at the sight of who he is, even though the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. Maybe you're here and you know someone and the work that Jesus has done in their lives and the transforming effect it's had on their lives. You've known, maybe you've grown up with the word, a camp, and you know it's undeniable who Jesus is, yet there are many of us that we just harden our hearts and we dig our heels into the ground saying, I will not submit to who Jesus is. It's a very warning, huge warning if that's our heart here this morning. We left off in verse 18. It says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. We ended last week just stating how of all the titles God could have given Jesus in the book of Isaiah and then here in the book of Matthew, he goes with my servant. My servant. And are we known for our heart of a servant? Do we serve our family? Do we serve our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, our community? Are we known as a servant of the Lord or are we just known as a church attendee of the Lord, a theologian of the Lord, a smart guy of the Lord, or are we known as a servant? Someone who serves others. We know Jesus, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. Here in verse 20 and 21, we also see the heart of who Jesus truly is. You see, Jesus is not that overbearing leader calling us a bunch of maggots or belittling us or making fun of us. When we fail and mess up, he doesn't tell us, drop and give me 50 push-ups. When we fail, he doesn't yell at us and scream at us. Instead, verse 19 says, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Instead of squashing or destroying a weak person, instead of throwing away a human being and just working on the next one, he wants to see each human being healed and built up and brought back into a relationship with him. He is patient and he is more than able to strengthen and breathe new life into that broken person. Perhaps that's you this morning. You are that broken and exhausted person. Your wick is about to burn out. Maybe you came here to church as a last-ditch effort. Know that the Lord, He wants to strengthen you. 
He wants to revitalize you. He wants to put his spirit within you. A bruised reed in ancient times, reeds were used for many different things. They were used for flutes or pens, different things like that. And who would spend the time trying to fix a broken reed? If you've been in the Everglades or dealt with cattails, who would spend the time after walking through and breaking reeds, they would spend time to try to fix them or repair them? I was trying to think of a modern take on this because I don't know when was the last time you walked through a field of reeds, right? We don't do that very often. But something I believe many of us can't stand, it's paper straws. (laughs) Anybody here love a good paper straw? I just love, no, my own children. When they go to a restaurant and the waiter puts the straw and they open it up, the moment they see it's a paper straw, they all go, ugh. Because they know the battle that they're in for the rest of their meal together. Many of us, if we know there's paper straws, we don't grab one. We grab ten to get us through our meal. We use one, get soggy, throw it away. Use next one, soggy, throw it away. Kid bites it, bends it, throw it away. Who would take the time and the love to get that mushy paper straw, try to dry it out, try to repair it, fix it, so that you could use it over and over and over again? We'd say, that person's insane. There's thousands, there's millions of those broken straws. Yet for some of us, we have been, or we are today, that broken person. And though the world would say, discard you and move on to the next, there's a billion of us human beings here on earth, the Lord wants to take your life, and he wants to heal you and repair you and fix you. He's more than willing to pour in the time and the effort and the love to breathe life back into you. We read earlier the heart of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That, that candle that you're always battling, the wick, the wick is too short and the wax is too big and you don't know what to do. You take a blowtorch to the center and you're trying to make more room for the wick. He doesn't just throw that away or discard it, but he would take time to take care of that candle and breathe new life into it. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, it's referencing a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. We see the Messiah, the prophecies from of old, were that the Messiah was going to come and heal the brokenhearted. Those that are captive, those who are in shackles, he's come to free. He's come to free us. David Brown, he says, Whereas one rough touch will break a bruised reed and quench the flickering, smoking flax, his it should be with matchless tenderness, love, and skill to lift up the meek, to strengthen the the weak hands, and to confirm the feeble knees. To comfort all that mourn and to say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong and fear not. 
Again, maybe you've come here this morning and you're just exhausted. You're tired. You're feeling weak and heavy laden. You're just fearful and scared. Jesus, he wants to come to you this morning. And if you'd allow him, he would love nothing more to strengthen you by coming to him. Verse 22, we see Jesus continuing to do his miracle power. We saw earlier in chapter 12 in verse 14, verse 9 through 14, he heals a man on the Sabbath. And instead of being blessed, instead of praising him, instead of exalting him or thanking the Lord, the Pharisees in verse 14, after seeing Jesus heal a man with a withered hand, it tells us the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. In verse 22, we see a similar heart from the Pharisees. It says, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus does an extraordinary miracle here. There were Jewish exorcists. That was their job, their position within the religious ranks of Judaism. And they believed that you needed to enter into a conversation with the demon... Trick the demon into telling you his name so that then you can use his name against him and command that demon to flee from a person. But if a man was so sick from a demon that he would be mute, they would be seen as incurable. You can't trick a mute man into speaking anything to you, much less their name. And yet in one verse, Jesus makes short work of this difficult situation. And all the multitudes there amazed, saying, could this be the son of David? They were amazed. They wondered, could this be the Messiah? The one that our parents and our grandparents and great-grandparents have been speaking about for thousands of years. Could this be him? However, the Pharisees, they make excuses. They condemn him. And they made Jesus out to be evil himself. You see, the Pharisees were unable to deny the supernatural power that Jesus possessed. However, they were too stubborn to humble themselves and submit to Christ. So instead, they say he's doing it by the power of Beelzebub. Are we here this morning just too stubborn to humble ourselves and submit to Jesus Christ? Are we saying, yeah, that person changed, but it's their special case their special scenario, yeah, it works for them, but it won't work for me. You've seen the work. You've seen the work in a loved one, in a family member, a friend, a son or daughter, a parent. You've seen the supernatural work. Are you willing to humble yourself and accept Jesus for who he truly is? Now, this isn't the first time Jesus goes through this. Back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus says, It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. 
If you are misunderstood, if your heart of being biblical is not taken for what it is, don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Don't be surprised. Jesus was called the master of the house of Beelzebub on several occasions. So when people say, oh, you've joined the cult, what's wrong with you? You've become a this, a that, or the third. You used to be cool. You used to be fun. What's happened to you? Just know they did the same thing to Jesus on several occasions. Verse 25, I love whenever we get to see this in Scripture. It tells us, but Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Jesus is using just pure logic here. If Satan owned a person and possessed them to the point where they could not speak and they could not see, what would Satan have to gain from freeing this person from demonic possession? He'd have nothing to gain, and every nation is concerned with civil war. It's the worst type of war. So why would Satan be fighting against himself, freeing people from possession of Satan himself? It makes no sense. I love Charles Spurgeon's quote on this. He says, whatever fault the devils have, they are not at strife with each other. That fault is reserved for the servants of a better master. I don't know if you paid attention to that and caught that subtle dig. Here, Charles Spurgeon, he says, the devils, they do lots of evil things, but they understand not to take shots at other devils. They're not fighting with other demons. They're not corroding each other or gossiping about each other. However, the servants of the best master, how often do we gossip and cut down one another? How often are we that kingdom that is being divided against itself? It makes no sense, no reason for it. May we pay attention to that, that if we are about our Father's business gathering, that's all that matters. Forbid them not. We're all a part of the same team if we truly believe the main things about the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus continues with this logic in verse 27. He says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. He's saying, hey, you say I cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies, right? So tell me, what power does your students in this Judaism and in these schools, what power do they use to free the demons? He's saying there has to be another answer here. And you know the answer, but you're hardening your heart to it. You say your sons, that is your disciples within Judaism, your exorcists, they go out and they free people by the power of the Lord. You're saying I free people by the power of Satan? I don't think that's the right answer to this equation here. I'll never forget during COVID, during those seasons, there was the great news that from the masks and the vaccines, we we just healed the flu and the common cold. The numbers, they just hit the floor. They were zero. We cured it. That's one possible answer. However, there's another possible answer that is probably the right one. All the numbers are the same. It's all the same thing. 
All the tests are revealing the same thing here. And this is what Jesus is saying. You're saying you do it on the power of the Lord. You're saying I do it on the power of Satan. Perhaps I'm working on behalf of the Lord and you're just too stubborn to humble yourself and let go of it. In verse 28 it says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. There were many prophecies in the book of Isaiah speaking of the Spirit of God being on top of the chosen Messiah that would come to free his people. We've referenced some of them in Mark and in Matthew, but here's the scriptures in Isaiah. Isaiah 11 verse 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Isaiah 42 verse 1, it says, I have put my Spirit upon him. And finally, in Isaiah 61, verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus came with the Spirit of God upon him, and yet the Pharisees, These men who knew the word back and forth were too stubborn to accept Jesus for who he truly is. Verse 29, Jesus now gives them an analogy. He says, Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Any kid that's played freeze tag or capture the flag, they they understand the logic here. The only way you're going to get the prize and plunder the goods in the strong man's house is to first bind the strong man. Here Jesus is stating that he is the one that is entering into the strong man's house. And he has the power to bind that strong man and then free those who are being held captive. He's the only one strong enough to bind the strong man, to bind Satan and his demons. The only one capable of doing this is Jesus Christ. He's our champion. He's the only champion for all of humanity. He's the only winning horse powerful enough to bind the strong man and free us from being owned and kept in Satan's house. You see, the idea of exorcists, it's all over the New Testament. However, there were few that did it in the power of the Lord. In Acts chapter 19, there's this group of Jewish exorcists. They're the first ghostbusters that we've ever seen before. And in Acts 19, they go out. This is their job. Again, a weird job to have, but this was their job. And they found a man who was demon-possessed. And they say, we come to you in the name of Paul, who knows Jesus Christ. And now the demon turns to them and says, Paul, I know, and Jesus, I know, but who are you? (laughs) Then it tells us the demon leaped on them, beat them up, and then, right, think of kids' ministry sometimes. But then it says these people (laughs) ran out of the house beaten and bruised and naked. This is how they ran out of that house. And what we see here is that Jesus is truly the only one powerful enough to take on the forces of darkness. 
And it's interesting how old things come back into fruition and become mainstream again. And it seems like within Christianity, demons are getting super popular again. You look at TikTok theology, right? There's a demon behind everything. You deal with gluttony. It's the demon of gluttony. The brownies get you. The demon of brownies. Demon of sneezing. There's demons behind everything. What we see biblically is, number one, we're not to pray to the demons. We pray to Jesus Christ. We don't pray to Satan. We pray to Jesus Christ. It's not our power or I bind you. No, it is Jesus. You got to do something here. You got to work on this because you're the only one that can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods. Lord, you're the only one that can bind the evil and the difficulties that are happening here to free the people being held captive. And the idea of Jesus being our champion, it's found all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. How he tells Satan, he shall bruise your head. There's one coming from the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. However, you will bruise his heel. This champion, he's come. And he's crushed the head of Satan. He's taken the power of sin and death and he's given us freedom if we would accept it. We can turn to 1 John chapter 3, and here we see the purpose of Jesus Christ, his mission. Earlier we read his mission statement, if you would, would to be to free those who are being held captive, the faint-hearted, the weak-hearted. He's come to free them, free the captives. And here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, we see another mission of our Lord and Savior. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 8. It says, He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil This is why God has come, why Jesus has come, is to destroy the works of the devil and free us. Free us from our sins. Free us from those chains. What are those sins that you're lying to yourself saying, I'm just never going to be able to overcome this. The pornography keeps getting me. The gossip keeps getting me. The lying keeps getting me. The fear, the depression, the anxiety. I'm just never going to have freedom over it. That's not what scripture says. The Lord wants to give you that victory over those sins and over those things that just own you and are over you. He's come to free us and to save us. But we need to come to him in humility and say, Lord, whatever you want for my life, Lord, it's all yours. Luke 19 verse 10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came on a rescue mission. He wants to bind the enemy, and then he's come to free each and every one of us from whatever has owned us or been our master. Back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Here Jesus attacks indifference within our hearts. In verse 30 he says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So we're seeing the mission of Jesus Christ to free those who are captive, to help the brokenhearted. And now it's to destroy the works of the enemy. Here in verse 30, it is to gather 
It's to gather people. He is on a gathering mission. We read it a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. It says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is why Jesus came, to seek and save those who are lost, to save these sheep that have no shepherd. He's on a gathering mission. And are we a part of this mission or are we simply indifferent? When you see multitudes, when you see crowds, what does your heart say? Oh, Lord, why does there have to be traffic today? That's what my heart says when there's multitudes and lots of people. But do we see all the souls that are present? Is that what we see? Uh, the last time I went to a football game, it was just something that sort of hit me, and maybe I'll ruin sports for you, but next time you're in an arena, look at the 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000, 100,000 people, and take a step back and consider, Lord, how many of these souls are saved? How many of these souls, because they don't know you, are going to spend eternity in hell? That's the heart of our Savior. He's moved with compassion. Jesus is on a mission to bind the enemy and to free people from the rule and mastery of Satan. He wants to gather people to himself. Am I on this same mission? Are we brokenhearted when we see the multitudes? David Brown, he says, neutrality in religion, there is none. The absence of positive attachment to Jesus Christ involves hostility towards him. G. Campbell Morgan says, Only two forces are at work in the world, the gathering and the scattering. Whoever does one contradicts the other. Which one are we doing? There's only two choices. I love questions like this. True or false? A or B? My favorite type of questions. Simple, simple, straight to the point. And here Jesus, he asks us a simple question. Are you gathering people to Jesus Christ or are you scattering them? There, there's no middle ground. There's no middle area. And indifference, it is scattering. Jesus here is moved with compassion, but sadly there are many Christians moved with apathy. Many Christians where they're not seeing all the souls, they're just too busy about their own things. They're too busy about their business. They're too busy about getting to A, B, C. We see it in Scripture. Jesus, he's on a mission, and then there's an interruption. And Jesus, he stopped every time for that interruption. The disciples would say, Lord, we're on our way to the servant of the temple. you got to go help him. you got to go heal his daughter. We don't have time for this woman with the flow of blood. She's unclean. But Jesus would stop. Every time for each interruption because there's a soul behind that situation. In James chapter 4 verse 17 it says, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. If you're here and simply indifferent to the gathering of Jesus Christ... If you're here and you're sensing the pull and the tug to Jesus, to his word, to his love, and you're just simply indifferent and apathetic towards it, be careful. 
And be aware of the words of Jesus. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. We go to verse 31 and 32. One of the most common questions in any Bible Q&A. It says, therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So what is the unpardonable sin? Many people have asked this question for ages. It's, putting, it's cooking a steak well done. That's, that's the unpardonable sin. No, it's not. It's putting milk and sugar and coffee. No, it's not that either, right? What is the unpardonable sin? Maybe once in your life you said, oh my goodness, I think I've done it. I think I've done it. I committed the unpardonable sin. I'm not going to be forgiven. If that's you here this morning, know that the very reason that your heart is burning, it's because the Lord wants to pardon you. He wants you to come and ask for forgiveness and receive that forgiveness. At times we get stressed out. I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I'm a goner. What's going to happen to me? And it's always important to remember the context. What's the very first word there in verse 31? Therefore. That word therefore, it acts as a bridge and connects all of this scripture together. And context is always king. Got to keep this all together. In Mark chapter 3, verse 28 through 30, Mark's gospel, it's a lot more like an action movie, a lot less words and a lot more action being thrown at us. So in Mark's account, in Mark 3, verse 28, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. This blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is in connection to the Pharisees saying, this isn't really the Son of God. This man is just acting on behalf of Beelzebub. That word blasphemy, it's to detract or to slander. And the Holy Spirit's primary work and function, it's found right there in the New Testament for us. The primary work of the Holy Spirit, it's not to give us tongues or give us the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The primary work and function of the Holy Spirit, we can turn to 1 John chapter 5. We'll look at 1 John 5 and then we'll jump to John 15 and 16. There's no doubt the Holy Spirit does want to give us the fruits of the Holy Spirit and the gift of the Holy Spirit. However, his primary function is shown to us in Scripture, 1 John chapter 5, verse 9 through 10. He says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And here we see the primary work of the Holy Spirit. It's testifying or giving the testimony of who Jesus Christ truly is. 
You jump to John 15 and 16. If you're not tired of turning pages yet, John 15 verse 26, Jesus tells the disciples, hey, I have to go soon. I got to go back to the Father, but I'm not going to leave you orphans. Don't worry, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send the Comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be here with you. I'm going to send the Helper to help you. And here's what the Helper is going to do. John 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's speaking to all humanity of who Jesus truly is. In John 16, Jesus gives us a few different things that the Holy Spirit does. John 16, verse 8, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me. Verse 13, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. And finally, verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So this is what the Holy Spirit does. He glorifies Jesus Christ. He testifies of Jesus Christ. He's a witness unto Jesus Christ. And he guides humanity to the truth if we don't lock in and just say, be, being stubborn and saying, I'm not going to give myself towards Jesus. If we humble ourselves, he's going to lead us. He's going to lead us to the truth. And now these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they prided themselves in knowing the word of God. They knew the word of God like no one else. And even though they're seeing the power of God in healing these people, they're seeing the power of God in the Son of God by these miracles being accomplished, but instead they decide to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and harden their hearts against the truth. This is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. David Guzik, he says, to reject Jesus from a distance or with a little information is bad. But to reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Jesus is fatal. And that's scary for some of us here because you know by coming to this church or any good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, you know much more about Jesus than the average person out there. You know he's not just a baby that comes out during Christmas and goes back in the closet and collects dust. You know a lot more about him. So now we have to come to the point where we're going to say, am I going to continue to harden my heart towards his lordship? Or am I going to surrender and say, Lord... My whole life is yours. Well, whatever you want is yours. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the continual rejection of who Jesus Christ is until the day we die. It is rejecting who Jesus is like the Pharisees did. It's rejecting the Holy Spirit's witness and testimony of who Jesus is. It's rejecting the Holy Spirit's guidance into all truth. And it is rejecting the Holy Spirit's glorifying of the person of Jesus Christ. And it's doing this until the day you die when then you can't do anything about it. Many of us once said we would never go to church. 
Well, I'm never going to be religious. That Jesus stuff, it's all made up. Make believe. It's created by man to control man. I'm sure many of us once said that. And yet here we are. Being forgiven. Being loved by God. Being invited into the family of God. So the fear of man. Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Am I never going to be forgiven? That's only to the person that is constantly rejecting the person of Jesus Christ until the day they die. Verse 33 and 34, actually through 37, he says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. We see you here in verse 33, similar to Jesus saying you're either gathering or you're scattering. Pick A or B. He does the same thing here. He says there's either a good tree with good fruit or there's a bad tree with bad fruit. It is literally good versus evil. There is no good tree, bad tree, and better than the other tree. There's no third option. It's either good tree or bad tree. And what was the fruit of Jesus' ministry? What was the fruit of his life and ministry? Healing people, feeding people, taking care of people. That was the fruit of his ministry. Yet the Pharisees were saying the tree is evil. In fact, the tree is from Beelzebub himself. Jesus is saying stop denying the fruit of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Then in verse 34, Jesus says brood of vipers. Right, you yellow belly snakes, you slimy, slithering snakes, right? What's wrong with you? This is what Jesus is saying. He says, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Verse 35, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Jesus is telling the Pharisees that by their own words of saying Jesus is working on behalf of Satan, they were revealing that their hearts were evil. And for each and every one of us, whenever our mouth starts going, it's revealing what's going on in the heart. Whenever we say a joke and we say, haha, just kidding, why are jokes funny? Because there's an ounce of truth to them. And when we say things, when we hurt people with our words, we can't just say, oh, just kidding. Oh, it's no big deal. My wife, she has thin skin. She has to grow thicker skin. She's got to get tougher. No, 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 no. You need to humble yourself and ask for forgiveness because there's some evil treasure in your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is our speech like? You see, I think there's three different areas of morality, and we give ourselves a pass when it comes to the morality of our mind and the morality of our speech. If we're doing immoral things with our hands or with our bodies, usually we're pretty convicted by it. 
But when we do immoral things with our speech, we kind of say, ah, everybody's doing it. All my coworkers are doing it. My family does it. This is the way I've always grown up. This is just the way I am. When we do immoral things in our mind, oftentimes because nobody else is in there with us, we think it's not a big deal. That we have these thoughts of anxiety and depression that are sinful. Because nobody else is there in our minds, we think we get a free pass. Because we have thoughts of hatred or anger. I want to wring this guy's neck. We think, I get a pass because nobody sees what's going on. When we lust after a man or after a woman or after money or power in our minds, we think we get a pass because nobody's in there with us. But Jesus made it very plain. If you hate someone in your heart and you kill them in your heart and mind, you've committed murder. You've been immoral in your mind. We will be judged for our thought process and the things we think. If you say, if you think about committing adultery with a woman in your mind, in your heart, you've committed immorality. You've committed adultery. It is immoral, our thought process. And here we have the same thing with our words. We think that our words are no big deal, but one of the scariest verses to me and all of Scripture, I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. That not frightening to you? Every word they speak, every word they type, every word they text, that's all going to be, roll back the film, Gabriel. And then I, I pray, I don't think he's going to do it right. Just put it on blast for everybody to see, all billions of Christians, and we're all sitting there. I can't believe I said that in middle school, right? And he's showing everybody what's happening. But our words, we should pay attention to our words. We should pay attention and govern our minds. Take every thought captive. Guard our heart, for from it come all the issues of life. We need to guard our mouths as well. And John Trapp says, idle and wasted words are to be accounted for. What then of evil and wicked words? If just idle, if just wasteful, if just wasted and dumb words are going to be accounted for, how much more evil and wicked words as well? Our holiness should happen not just with our bodies outwardly, but in our minds and in our speech. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 6. And in Proverbs chapter 6, there's different tools that the author of Proverbs uses to get us to remember these nuggets of wisdom. Here he uses one that people use on Twitter or social media, the top six things that God hates, the top seven things that are an abomination to God, and it should get our attention. And what we're going to see here is that about half of these things that God hates Half of the things that are an abomination to him are done with our mouth. They're done with our mouth. Proverbs 6.16. It says, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue. Right? As parents, don't we dumb it down sometimes? Oh, little Harvey, he's just in a lying phase. He just likes white lies a lot. No, God hates that. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies. But when we gossip about one another, when we talk bad about one another, God hates it. And then finally, one who sows discord among brethren, the one who's feeding and just adding to la salsa, right? 
One that's fanning the flame and just trying to sow discord, trying to sow animosity between the family of Christ. God hates these things. And yet these three things all happen with our mouth. We will be judged for every idle word that we speak. We will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Whether our words reveal that the Lord owns our heart or whether something else is revealed. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We can tell what you're feeding on by what comes out of your mouth. If you're always talking about sports, we can see where your heart is at. If you're always talking about stocks, we can see where your heart is at. If you're always talking about politics, we can see where your heart is at. And these things come to a head when we go through difficulties. Then it's truly shown where is our heart based on our mouths. When we go through trials, are we cursing God? Why me? How dare you do this? I don't deserve this. Or are we saying, Lord, naked I came into this world and naked I go out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's been said Christians are a lot like tea bags. You can tell what flavor they are when they're in hot water. And when we go through trials, when we go through difficulties, that abundance of the heart, it will come out. People are going to see if you're short with your spouse, you're exploding on your kids, you're saying all sorts of things to your coworkers about your boss. Your heart is being revealed. What you're feeding on is being revealed. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and then one more scripture after that. Ephesians 5. For me, when I came to the Lord, my speech was something that the Lord just miraculously healed. I had the mouth of a sailor throwing in bad words just for fun. And it was the moment I came to the Lord, it was like that was healed and taken away from me. And what we see in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 is that we need to pay attention to our speech. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication, any type of sex outside of marriage, and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you. As is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Our speech as believers should be used to glorify the Lord God, thank Him for what He's done, and build up the body of Christ. Build up one another. Yet many of us use our tongue to destroy others. Cut down people. I say it all the time. Sarcasm is not a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not. And yet with our spouse, with our kids, are we building them up with our tongues, with our mouths? Are we speaking the important things, the eternal things? Men, isn't it true how difficult it is for some men to just say, I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm grateful for you. I'm glad you're my son. I'm glad you're my daughter. Those things that are so important, men, we put it off till we're on our deathbed. And yet the making fun of them, the mocking them, the sarcasm, the belittling them, oh, that pours out, easy peasy. But the things that matter, the things that are eternal, things that are going to build up our spouses, our children, our family, we sort of write off for the day that we die. Let it not even be named among us. May we speak as saints. 
Our mouths, are they filthy? Is it foolish talking? Is it coarse jesting? Know that you will give an account for it in the day of judgment. For the middle school boys here, the high school boys, the college boys, what is your speech? What are your jokes like around your buddies when there's no youth leaders or parents around? Is it holy speech or is it coarse jesting? Is it talking about nasty things that you would never do it on the youth video of what you're grateful for youth camp? That should not be named among you, and you should call one another out when you see it and when you hear it. Because what our mouths should be used for is glorifying God, giving thanks, and building the body of Christ. Finally, let's turn to Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 11. And what Jesus has shown us is that all of our empty, all of our idle, All of our wasteful and sinful words will lead us to condemnation. But scripturally, there are also words that will lead us to justification. There are words that will lead us to be cleansed to the point where it's just as if we never sinned. By our words we'll be justified and by our words we will be condemned. In in Romans chapter 10... Verse 9 through 11, notice this. He says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And then out of the abundance of the heart, with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And maybe that's you here this morning, this afternoon. You've never publicly declared the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. You've never declared that you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and died for your sins, and now you want to follow him for the rest of your life. I encourage you, worship team, you guys can come up, but I encourage you, here at the end of service, come up front, pray with one of the pastors, Talk with us and have those words that will justify you from now to the end of time. Have those words that are out of the abundance of your heart, out of the abundance of the change, the inner change that God has done. Man, say those words. Believe those words. And also, if you have sin that you need to confess, confess it with your mouth. Confess it to the Lord. Confess it to that person that you've hurt so that you'd be forgiven and cleansed of your sin and all unrighteousness. So hey, let's all stand and we'll close with worship. If you need prayer, there's pastors up front. We would love to pray with you. Lord, we we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your heart, Jesus, Lord. Meek and lowly, so gentle, Lord. And how you want to give us that gentle touch here today, God. For those of us who are hurting, those of us who are exhausted, those of us who are weary, Lord, those of us who are being condemned by the devil, Lord, I pray that this afternoon we would run to you, Lord, and we would say, yes, Lord, please help me, strengthen me, breathe new life into me, fan that flame once again. Lord, if there's anyone here that they've just been hardening their heart, Lord, they know who you are. The Holy Spirit's been revealing to them the truth of the gospel, the truth that we're all sinners, the truth that apart from you we can do nothing. Lord, I pray that each of us, we would humble ourselves and we would cry out to you, Lord. That out of the abundance of our heart, our mouths would confess that Jesus is Lord. 
So Lord, we love you. We pray that you'd be with our friends and family members, Lord, those who are weak and weary and tired. Lord, may you use us this week to use our word, use our action, Lord, to encourage them, to breathe new life into them, to bind up and heal the brokenhearted, Lord, to lift up those tired arms, Lord, and those feeble knees. So Lord, we love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.